This is the fourth episode, or should I say edition, of the Known Pleasures podcast, a podcast centred on the post-punk slash new wave era of the late 70s and early 80s. Now I'll leave it to Mark to introduce today's band. In 1977, John Joseph Lydon, knee rotten, made his name defining punk. Twelve months later, he arguably went one better to invent a post-punk. A mere nine months after breaking up the incendiary Sex Pistols, the first output from his new band, Public Image Limited, arrived in October 1978 in the perfect form of the single, Public Image. Shedding the skin of punk like the old music was, the track featured a pulsing, heavy, dub-style bassline from childhood friend Jar Wobble and glassy, metallic guitar from former Clash member Keith Levine. Above it all was Lydon's bitter wailing rant about reclaiming his own particular public image. Postmodern, catchy as hell, it sounded like nothing else before it, let alone the Pistols Mark II many craved. An album followed in December that equally rewrote the rules of the new. Public image weren't the only ones exploring these spaces, but suddenly a lot more seemed possible and the idea of punk being truly progressive seemed to take shape. The door this young punk had kicked in was now well and truly open and anything might happen. So the public image story, where would you say it began? For San Francisco? For, for them or for me? For, well, them first. Them first, hmm. more importantly. Well, as many people would know, the Sex Pistols played that the short-lived American tour in 78, maybe the end of 77 possibly. Hmm. But anyway, it was a very short tour. The final gig in San Francisco was the last straw for John Lydon, pretty much walked off at the end of it and said, ever get the feeling you've been had? Sid Vicious was busy cutting himself, <laughs> not playing a lot of <laughs> bass. Which was, he wasn't really good at that anyway. And uh, John said, that's it, I'm done, and left. Flew back to, uh, I think he went to Jamaica for a short time actually. Yep. Uh, with a few friends and yep. uh, lobbed back in London and uh, called up Keith and Wobble, said, let's do something, boys, and um, we'll rope in a drummer. And before they knew it, they had an album that made its way to Australia. It did. And it affected you deeply? Um, I don't know that the album affected me deeply. I heard the single first and my old friend Curtis had a copy of it and I was obviously, like anybody in those days, expecting something like the Sex Pistols from John Lydon. And didn't get that at all. It was like nothing I'd ever heard. That single, as I said in the intro, had that sort of dub style bass line, which I wasn't really familiar with. And the guitar didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before. Um, it really set me back. And I think I would probably maintain it was the first proper post-punk recording, given that, well, John Lydon was the punk icon and it was the first thing he did and it didn't sound like punk. So therefore I'm going to call it Post-punk, <laughs> by definition. <laughs> and you heard it more or less when it came out? Um, yeah, probably a little bit after that. I mean, Australia was a little bit behind in those mm, days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was probably living in England when it came out. Maybe I heard it there. That's a good point. I'm not quite sure on that. Mm. I'd have to, have to do a bit more research there, Patty. You put yeah. me on the spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I feel like I probably heard it for the first time a few months after it came out or maybe 12 months after maybe it came 79. out. Maybe 79. yeah. So probably the first time I heard the song, which is an amazing song, it might have melded a little bit into other songs by other bands from 1979, which were, you know, so it was kind of less revolutionary to me when I heard it than it actually was at the time because, you know, so much was happening so quickly. Mm, that's a good point. So, But, uh, yeah, it was still, still mm. pretty extraordinary. And uh, reading the lyrics of the song, you can tell he was frustrated with the whole punk movement. Mm. And the song is basically about McLaren and the band, but he was also disillusioned with the fans and just, yep. you know, the whole yep. scene. Well, he was angry that so. it became repetitious and everybody had, you could look up punk in the dictionary and, and you'd know what it would look like and what it would sound like. And mm. the idea was not to do that. Yeah. To have a thousand bands, he said, that don't sound like us that are different. That's what he said when he was in the Pistols. Mm. And it just didn't work out that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, mm. the idea of the kind of punk uniform and all that sort of stuff, mm. which is what he was specifically rebelling against mm. and you know if, if you look at the cover of the public image debut album they all look very neat they've got kind of makeup well john's got his hair slicked back nicely yeah, i yeah. think they may have been wearing suits in a lot yeah, of the promo yeah. stuff which was just a complete departure yeah from yeah. from the safety pins and bondage trousers and all yeah the well they were, yeah they were specifically trying to look stylish I think they were specifically trying to look unlike what was expected. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that was the next reaction yeah. to go back to. Yeah. Once again, I always bring this in, but the style of the music was really important as, as much as the sound, the way they looked and what they what they represented was just as important. 
because mm-hmm. it was a yeah. departure from everything yeah. that had just yeah. happened that had just blown a hole in music yeah, you know, yeah. To, to leave that behind and go, no, that's old news. Well, the cover of that album looks particularly amazing, the 12-inch version, which I happen to have, and you just see how big their heads are. <laughs> like mm. it's really it's mm. really striking. Like it's at least three of them are kind of almost full head size. <laughs> <laughs> Bubble heads. <laughs> yeah. And that just makes it all the more striking a statement, I think, because they are kind of saying, look at us. Mm. Well, and listen to us. The music, yeah. we've talked about that single, but the album was a bit of a departure as well. Um, well, not a bit of a departure, a complete departure. Every track was kind of a bit of a challenge mm. and not exactly easy listening. Not the punk was easy listening either. But um, it was kind of like post-rock or something. It was quite slow and mm. ponderous. Mm. You had those yeah. big heavy bass lines, the kind of soaring guitar stuff, really influential guitar sound. I always talk about that, but I think yeah, Keith yeah. Levine was incredibly influential in what he was doing, playing aluminium guitars to get that kind of sound that uh, The Edge was to s- successfully copy many years later and make a lot more money out of. <laughs> um, I think it was self-produced, the first album too, for the most part. Yeah. Maybe they had a couple of engineers in there, but they did most of it themselves. So that's an achievement. It's in, And all in a very short space of time. Mm-hmm. I think we said, what, October was the album? Maybe a little bit or, later. Yeah, I, I do have some notes on this somewhere. But um, <laughs> I don't have them on me. As long but as they're somewhere. Somewhere. But, yeah, it was very, very quickly done. And, you know, a year had gone by from, from one thing to the next. That You know, I think it was the June, June or Ju- July, the Jubilee in 77. Mm. The Fiora around God Save the Queen and all yeah, the rest yeah. of it. So in, in just over a year, he'd gone from all of that to, to a complete and utter new direction and reinvented what could be done with the form. from the first track, side one. Yes. This like goes for what eight minutes or what? Nine and a half or Is something. It? Yeah. It's long. Yeah. 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 And mm. and it's religion it's, part one, religion part yeah, two, yeah. which was written for the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, apparently Steve Jones uh, and Paul Cook didn't like. Wasn't it. having it. Was I'm not having it. <laughs> not having it. Don't you be talking about a religion. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get us into trouble, mate. <laughs> really, he drew, he drew the line there. Yeah. <laughs> Leave our Lord out out of it, That's mate. That's right. The Queen, fair game, gov. <laughs> Well, that particular song, like the opening song theme, I think it's called, mm. that goes like eight, nine minutes and which is so ponderous as well and it's such a strong statement of this is not mm. what I've done before. Mm. And in stark contrast to what their contemporaries, for instance, The Clash were doing. So mm. Give Them Enough Rope, Clash's second album came out around about the same time. That's true, yeah. And that was classic kind of. Um, three chord, three minute. It was refined, a bit more refined mm. than the first album, but it's what you expected. I, and I don't think any of the other punk bands were doing anything that interesting. No. The, no. the Damned, the Stranglers and people like that were doing what they yeah. were doing. It was good stuff. Yeah. But this was like you would just put it on and go, what the hell is this? If you were a punk fan in those days, you would not have understood it. Mm. No, no. There's and no no point of reference either because it didn't sound like anything that I, that no, I can think of. It sounded maybe a little bit like um, the likes of Can. Yeah, kind of I can see rock, yeah, early seventies, but but you've still got his voice over the top of mm. it, which changes it again. There's a really strong dub element to it, which, mm. uh, as I said, as a youngster back then, I had no reference points of dub to really show me that that could be done. That impossibly heavy, deep bass sound, like, yeah, yeah. what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you wonder what uh, record companies must have thought at that point. Like they initially hated punk, mm. but once punk took off, I imagine they wanted all bands to sound like this. They yeah, wanted to yeah. sign all these bands because yeah. yeah, they knew that's what people wanted. And yeah. uh, and then all of a sudden they hand in this album. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially after um, the quite commercial public image single, mm. which came out a few months, I think, before the album. Yeah, it came out and in that, May, I think, yeah. Yeah, and, mm. and that went top ten. So, you know, Virgin, the record company, would be thinking, okay, well, let's have another nine of them. And for our younger listeners, Virgin wasn't just an airline and a mobile phone <laughs> provider. It used to be a record company. Yes. And well, a, great, round, a great one. A very good record company and had featured many of the bands that we loved mm. from the era. So Richard Branson was a bit of a risk taker and was quite open yeah, to, yeah. to doing stuff like this. Yeah, uh, yeah, and more, more credit to him, yes. Sir Richard. Mm. Certainly. No, I, I admire him for that, mm. for all the music that we were able to hear. And you like billionaires anyway. 
Mm. I do. Well, I've always liked the way he uh, jet skis with naked models on his back. It does look good. Yeah. And he's kept the same haircut for 40 years. <laughs> you got to admire that. you got to admire someone who's rich enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Graham, did you have a, a particularly dramatic introduction to public image? Um, my introduction? Actually, I was thinking before um, that I remember dancing at Maryland's or one of those places. Oh, yes. This is a nightclub in Brisbane. Um, to the first um, public image single, really, and um, yeah, it, it used to, it just, I used to hear it around a lot, but I didn't latch onto that first album. It, it wasn't until a friend of mine who had the um, we're not onto the second album yet, but the Metal Box album because he had he had the actual Metal Box that, oh, yes. that, that the, the records came in, and he lent it to me, and I recorded them all on the cassette. And, that was uh, illegal, you know that. Well, I know that now, and remains so. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, three years after I was released from prison, <laughs> I, I was um, I started listening to <laughs> listening to the album again, and that was really my introduction to them then because I didn't hear first issue. First I edition, I think it was. Yeah. Is it first edition or first issue? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. um, Whatever it is, it's the opposite for the second album. Yes. Yeah. Your child is your first issue. <laughs> I think it's first issue and then second edition. It is. Okay. It is. Uh, yes, I knew the single but didn't know the album. Right, right. Um, you but, weren't interested in investigating it, obviously, based off the uh, single. No, no. Well, I liked the single, but because the Sex Pistols had dissolved, I'd gone on to, um, to other things. Bigger and, and better? Bigger and better things. Yeah. And I, as I said, it wasn't until this friend of mine said, you should listen to Public Image, this is really good. And that's where I listened to Metal Box. But um, I have since gone back and listened to the first album. I, I like it. There's some, some good stuff on it's, there. It's rough. I mean, it, some of it's not the easiest and some of it's mm. quite good. I would say it was a good statement of intent. Yeah, yeah. And I still <clears throat> still say it probably set the template for a lot of things to come. I keep going on about the bass, but it's such a major feature of a lot of the music that we've been talking about. Big, big part of the music was the bass in those first two albums. Uh, and the guitar, that edgy, weird guitar, atonal, kind of climbing up and down. It's not really playing anything that you'd recognise as a structure. No, no. But it's it's really well played. If you get a chance to listen to what he's doing and just isolate it from yeah. anything else, it's mm. really up there with anything that we've been talking about in this series so far. It's extraordinary that someone who is as inventive a guitarist as Keith Levine was only survived in the very early days of The Clash. And then they... He was a touring musician with them. He didn't play on any of the no, albums. No. Yeah. no. So The Clash ended up having their own you know, very distinctive sound and their own you know, like amazing career, mm. completely separate from this one-off freakishly talented guitarist mm. who went in a completely different direction. So well, apparently John Lydon met him on the tour when they did the Anarchy in the UK tour ah, okay. with The Dam, The Clash, The Pistols, a few other people, and became friends with him. And yeah. they both started talking about, well, maybe we could do something together. So even at that early stage, which was probably late 76, I think, John was already thinking about the future past yeah, this yeah, and yeah. that he might be interested in working with someone who could do that. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting point. Well, he, John Lydon has described Keith Levine as a professional misery. Well, perfect company. As then. a personality. So <laughs> yeah. um, that he was basically a miserable geek. Right. 100% of the time, according to John. And so, that's rich coming from him. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, that was plenty in terms of forging a friendship, so it seemed. Interesting story about the drummer on the first album. He was a Canadian that had just rocked up to London and set an ad, I believe, in the music papers and played drums, yes, most yeah. of the drums on the album. Yeah, oh, really. And then no one heard from him ever again? Uh, I think More he played less. a bit on the second album possibly. But, yeah, he was just a young guy that sort of, um, I don't know how you get that gig. No. Mm. What, what, what well, have you guys I, done before with the sex? What? Well, apparently the ad um, in the music press that John Lydon put in, the ad said, lonely musician seeks comfort in fellow trendies. That's a good ad. <laughs> and it didn't say so, who the band was. No. It was, could have been anybody. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was the ad that the Canadian drummer who just, he, he just. Martin uh, Atkins? Uh, no, 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 he was, he was second, later on. He was, he was the second, the second album. Oh, uh, Walker. Name. Uh, was it Jim Walker? Jim Walker, it was. My um, apologies. So, yeah, but so he was just on that one album and... Uh, did a sterling job. He did a great job, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah Where so is he now? I think he might have gotten into a bit of film production and such. So he's okay? I think so, Oh, yeah. good. <laughs> as long as he's okay. <laughs> as long as he's okay. So there we are. We, we've got to the end of 78. Post-punk, the template has been established. Yeah. So Your other what... bands are out looking around going, well, hang on a minute. Yeah. Things have changed. Mm. So what is John thinking 
What are they going to do next? What are they going to do next? Well, which brings us to to my particular favourite public image album, which was the Metal Box, otherwise known as Second Edition. Um, I have a story about this, about badgering a really good friend of mine, Stephen Walter, into buying that particular Metal Box edition. <laughs> because you couldn't buy it. Oh, well, no, I, I couldn't have. So it. just to spell it out, mm. the album was initially released in what looked like a kind of a film canister. They were, I think, three metal film canisters uh, stamped with the, embossed with the logo on the front. So was it literally three separate canisters or yes. was it one canister? No, no, it was separate canisters, I believe, initially, I think. Right. Okay. Um, and you could you could get what of I think it was three records mm. with the two tracks each side or something mm. along those lines because he wanted to have that sort of deep dub yeah, sound yeah, yeah. that you get from yeah the greater frequency yeah from twelve inch vinyl yeah there's the bigger spaces between the grooves so there's let there's more room for those deeper frequencies yeah. Yeah. so that was the idea I could be wrong on that but I I thought it was three I have a feeling it was but I could be wrong there were several runs of it and then they yeah. reissued and they stopped it and then they put it onto vinyl and all the rest of it yeah. but I convinced Steve that it would be a good investment <laughs> and that appealed to his um well his do you sense, recall whether it cost a lot more than, than it a wasn't classic cheap it, it was probably you know I guess what was a record in those days nine dollars or something like that maybe. Would that be about right? Yeah, about that. It was probably something like forty dollars mm. or something like that, which is a lot when right, you're at yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but Steve could afford it, and uh, I believe he still has it. Oh, really? He hasn't realised its value yet. I think he has a, a quick look on eBay every now and again to see what he might get for it. But he, as far as I know, he hasn't sold it. So good on you, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Hanging on to that. <laughs> yeah. Good work. Wow. Um, so that's what he did next in terms of packaging. Now we were talking about this album recently, Graham, and you said you went back to listen to it and it wasn't that great. It wasn't. I don't think it's held up as well as I thought. Or maybe I should say it wasn't as good as I remembered. I nothing used to, is. Because I, <laughs> <laughs> I used to um, drive around and listening to it in the car. Right. And and I loved it at the time. But it was... Were um, you high? The- I didn't even drink alcohol back then, Mike. As you I didn't say you were drinking alcohol. Mm, you had a panel van. That wasn't you? the question. I had a Mazda 323. And, um, that came in a van? <laughs> <laughs> I vanned it out, yes. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I guess, what's the first song, Albatross? Albatross. Yes. Getting um, rid of the Albatross. There he yeah. is. He said it all yeah. right there. It was there. a reference to Malcolm McLaren, wasn't it? Uh, another one possibly. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it was one of those albums that was uh, very close to my heart as a teenager, but yeah. when I played it um, recently, I, I think I had high hopes for it bringing back fond memories and it just didn't do it for me. It was... Uh, yeah, yeah. It just, it just wasn't as good as I remembered. So um, you, you've always lent towards the more melodic side of music. So I'm, I'm surprised that you loved it back in the yeah, day. Yeah, me too, because it's not it's not easy listening again, mm. though it is pretty funky. It's mm. definitely edging towards a kind of a dance element there. Certainly the bass is, but the drums, there isn't a single oh, memorable drum beat on the album. No, they're all four, four to the floor sort of yeah, drum beats, yeah. but so, um, it's very funky, I think. Yeah, well, definitely what Jar Wobble is doing on, on bass is funky for sure. Mm. <clears throat> well, yeah, I have to say that there are three or four songs on the album that I... I won't say loathe. Loathe really? is a strong word. Detest is probably Deta- closer. <laughs> Positively <laughs> hate. Detest is better. <laughs> well, um, I think of particularly, but particularly songs like uh, Albatross. First 30 seconds of Albatross, I'm thinking... How long is this going to go on? This, uh, <laughs> how long, firstly, is this song going to go for and, and how long is this is album going to go for? 10, uh, 10 minutes, 34 seconds. <laughs> ten, yeah. For the album, sorry, for the song and the another, song. what, 50, 55 minutes or whatever. 60 minutes. 60, 60 minutes, yeah. Yeah, it's over an hour. Yeah, yeah. So there are, there are some songs on Metal Box which, which I think are fantastic. I mean, uh, Pop Tones yeah, Pop is Tones the is song that Albatross wishes it was. I would say, um, and careering, I think, is great. You got to like radio. I like, four. I like, I like Come careering. On. Yeah, yeah. Radio yeah. four is a is a is a groundbreaking. Well, the, the, the last the last three, the last three yeah. songs I think mm. are really good. As a matter of fact, I, I really like the last songs on all of their albums. I, I yeah. like, like those first three albums. Um, the, the really strong endings. What I love about Metal Box is the kind of passion and the 
it sounds pretentious, sorry, but the kind of unity of purpose, like they feels like a real band to me, which is really trying to do something specific mm. and something really challenging and something really interesting. And I think you can forgive a band a lot when they're in that mode mm. and produce an album like that, which is such a complete album, whether you like it or not. Like I think it's a hugely admirable it's album. It's an important album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in terms of the possibilities, as you've said previously, Mark, about what could be done in the post-punk mm. environment, they were just stretching the boundaries yeah. so far. And what Jar Wobble on bass and Keith Levine on guitar are doing, particularly together, like the way those two instruments are kind of merging mm. was just amazing. And Keith Levine has described it as telepathic, the kind of relationship between them musically, even though they didn't get along particularly well as people. You know, outside mm. of the studio, they didn't like each other very much. But within that recording context, like there's something really magical at times, mm. I think. Um, I think it stands up really well. I know, I know that we will have to disagree on this one. Um, I should say that it did it did come in one metal box, the three disc. Ah, in the okay, box. Right, mm. right. I don't know why I thought. I think there was some. Maybe when they did the CDs, there was. Yeah, because when I borrowed it from a friend of mine, it, it was just the one. Yeah, yeah. One. I don't know yeah. why I've got that in my head, but you know, I'm, I'm not yeah. right on that one. So. Um, yeah, so the packaging, everything about yeah, yeah, it, was, it was extraordinary. Was, and that's from one album to the next. This is a pattern that we've talked about with the whole post-punk mm. era. Like from the, the progress was so quick that you, you blinked and you missed it yeah, from yeah. all of these bands, what they were doing at the time. Once again, pretty much self-produced. I think um, they had a couple of engineers yeah, in there, yeah, Hugh yeah. Padgham. Yeah. Went yeah. on to great things with the police and other people, I believe. And they had um, what three or four drummers? I think Keith Keith Levine played yep. drums on one yeah, what, yeah. one or he, two tracks. He played a bit there. Um, our, our mate that we mentioned before, Martin Atkins. Yep. yep. Who also went to play with Killing Joke and a few other people around. I think. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I experienced such extremes of emotion listening to. <laughs> you get angry. You get album. sad. <laughs> yeah. Happy. Well, just because Albatross, I think, is is an unusually challenging song. Like, really? Really unusually challenging. That, is it that, the title that bothers you? It's not one of my favourite <laughs> avian um, <laughs> species. Species? I think there are harder songs That's than Albatross. Hard, yeah. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Where that's coming from? Well, you yeah. never liked Neil Diamond's Jonathan Livingston Seagull. You know, no, so. <laughs> no, I never liked a flock of seagulls. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, you hate birds. Yeah, yeah, and I can. I, can I hated the birds. That. Yes, well, the birds deserved hating. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. Yes. So, um, so we've got one so, awesome album, one, uh-uh, and one not as good as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> as I say, some songs on Metal Box I think are are fantastic. You'd have cut it down to a single album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I reckon yeah. it's 28 minutes of greatness. In, in a plastic box. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still going to go on record and say it's one of the great post-punk albums for me. I know okay. we'll have to disagree on that, but I, I believe it really. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> if you uh, say so. If you say so. <laughs> now, I agree it, it's an important album. And as you said, this probably is the catalyst post-punk. As but we know it. As we know it. Hmm. Um, a, but, a lot of people may yeah. disagree with that. Well, well I, wrong. I would also, there, <laughs> there's a particular aspect of the album that I found irritating as well as the other it's ones apart I mentioned. from Albatross. <laughs> <laughs> the first track, what um, else? Which is what else the, you like? the, the jamming aspect of it, that most of the songs are kind of two chord or three chord jams that are this, that kind of end the same as they began without mm-hmm. a lot of movement mm. in that, that. That's that's the, the funk that element that I'm but, yeah. I'm liking that you're probably not liking. Maybe. Well, I guess it feels to me a little bit as if the kind of kraut rock bands did that to the nth degree. They had the 16-minute songs and so mm. on, like as I say, Can and Noi and those, those kind of bands, mm. and just felt a little bit like like that had kind of been done. And I'm not saying that, you know, jamming died in 1972 with, with Can, mm. but I found songs like, like Memories... Um, on the, the Metal Box album much more interesting than a lot of the rest of the album because there was a bit of structure to it. There was you know, overdubbing and, and, and just a bit more kind of sonic interest. But those kind of things are really subjective. Yeah. But, but when I think of a lot of bands that I saw in Melbourne as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old in the early 80s at the Seaview Ball and the Prince of Wales, etc. It felt to me like there were a lot of bands playing these, you know, eight-minute songs. Jams. On, yeah, yeah. Well, and, Hunters and, and Collectors made a career out of it, the yeah, first album. Yeah, except they were fantastic at it. That was good, but it was <laughs> similar territory. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But um, And also it's probably fair to say that what I'm talking about 
the early 80s is a couple of years after Metalbox. So, you know, which that is... That puts it into context. Like, yeah, it was 79 um, Metalbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we'll have to have, agree to disagree a little bit, but we, we, we do think it set the template for a lot of mm. other things as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely an important album. So we we now reached the point for the contentious Flowers of Romance album, the third yes, album. Yes, which was 18 months later. 81. Yep. Yep. Uh, Jar Wobbles left. Jar Wobbles no bass. left. Keith Levine's still there. John yep. Lydon's still there. Succession of drummers. A young lad called Nick Lornay is drafted in. He's sitting down the back of the studio. Do you, do you know the story? He's sitting down the back of the studio and the He's studio engineer the they've got. Sorry? He was polishing the glasses. <laughs> he, was, he was a dog's body. He was a dog's body, yeah. yeah. And the, the engineer they've got is kind of going, oh, how does this work? How does this work? And Nick Lornay is down the back. He's like 20 years old or something, like young mm, anyway. Young guy. Um, and he's going, oh, you, know, you, you, you need to do this to make this particular you know, thing function. And after a while, John Lydon gets so irritated by the fact that, that the engineer can't do the job and the young assistant can that the engineer goes out to get some lunch or to go to the toilet or whatever and is locked out of the studio <laughs> by John Lydon. And who was that engineer? I don't know. I Is it Steve Lillywhite? It's Steve Lillywhite. Oh, really? Yes, of, of <laughs> all kinds of albums fame. Yeah, I, I heard that he was initially brought on board and then it didn't work out. And I'd also heard about the engineer who was locked out of the studio, but I, I wasn't sure that the they were one and the same. I think it's the same guy. For the purposes of this conversation, we're going to say that it is. Yeah, so it's, it's Steve more Lillywatt, of an interesting story, I think. So Steve Lillywatt, who went on to produce a couple X- of U2's biggest albums, yes, and Simple Mind, XTC, was locked out of the studio. Was pounding on the door, as I say, for the purposes of the story. Let's it up a Someone else altogether. But in any case, Nick Lorne, this young guy, hot shot. Go getter. Hot, hot shot. Knew go-getter. how to work an SSL gets desk. His, <laughs> yeah, gets his first production credit. And what does he do? What does he do? He well, invents the drum sound of the eighties. He yes, basically. Yes. Mm. Pretty much. Did, didn't um, Phil Collins listen to Flowers of Romance and said, "I want, I want that drum I, sound." I want that guy. I want that drum sound. And yeah. he got he got Nick Lorne in. He to did. Do, yeah. Although there was a whole Peter Gabriel pre. Cursor, like a, I think there was a song on Peter Gabriel's album which inspired Phil Collins to some extent with In the Air Tonight. But Phil Collins oh, really? played drums on a couple of the Peter mm, Gabriel yeah, albums. Yeah, so yeah. he wanted that big, empty, yep. gated sort of sound, mm, which, which for the uninitiated means you get sort of like a sucked out sound mm. from, the, from the drums. Uh, it's very atmospheric and big, which, mm. was a, which was a big sound in the 80s. Yep. And the first track... On Flowers of Romance, speaking of that sound, is called Four Enclosed Walls, yeah. which gives you a really good example of the of the drum sound that we're talking about. And Patrick said to me last week, if, if you don't do anything this week, and you probably won't, go back and listen to Flowers <laughs> of Romance. Give it another crack. Because I'm yeah. not a big fan of the album. I kind of lost interest there at that point. fan when it came out? No. I listen, I have it and I listened to it quite a bit, but it just didn't engage me in the same way. Yep. And I think it's possibly because it's only got two tracks with any bass on it. So it's completely, almost completely bass-free, yep. which is yep. about as revolutionary as you're going to yeah. get. With it's almost it's almost guitar-free as well. Mm. It's it's pretty much just drums. Drums and incidental instruments. And incidental stuff. That, mm. So you've got an album which is pretty much these pounding huge drum beats. Yep. In 1981, and nothing else yeah. going on, and quite funky drum beats. So mm. I'm going to throw out a theory here and mm. call this the first hip hop album. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. LL Cool J came out with Radio in about 1985 or 86, and uh, and obviously Run DMC were doing similar things on Def Jam. Mm. Just drum beats and rapping. There was no mm. bass. Yeah. There was pretty much nothing else in there, and it, people's minds were blown. How can this be music? Yeah, yeah. Go back and listen to Flowers of Romance <laughs> yeah, in 1981 yeah. and you've got the same thing. You've got well, this the- <laughs> crazy vocal and these huge <laughs> drum beats and nothing yeah. else. Yeah. 
I would contend that uh, Flowers of Romance did that particular drum sound of those drum, almost tribal drum yeah. patterns mm, before, yeah, a, before Bow Wow Wow and before, before Adam, Adam and the Ants. Yeah, yeah, well, I was going to say that's the next thing. They, they actually brought in those, you know, the rototom sounds and the, the pounding sort of rhythms, not, not kick and snare drum but yeah. patterns, yeah. just these sort of rolling drum things. Mm. Yeah. But Four Enclosed Walls could be a hip-hop song. Yeah. If, you, if you listen to that yeah, drum yeah. beat, it's, yeah. it's pounding, huge sound. Yeah. And I, that's the first thing I thought when I listened to it mm. the other day. This is proto hip hop. If those guys in New York weren't listening to Flowers of Romance, <laughs> I'll eat my hat. <laughs> <laughs> White people invented hip hop. That's right. There you go. I've said I'm it before. You, you've said it before, but never committed it to <laughs> tape. <laughs> I think in previous podcasts we have concluded that uh, white. Man yeah. invented funk. Invented funk, that's right. <laughs> but I think they also it invented hip hop. <laughs> the much maligned white man. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> when will he ever get his due? <laughs> when will his time come? <laughs> I've always been trying to keep the white man down. <laughs> so, getting back on track, what struck me listening to, to Flowers of Romance, it was an album that when it came out, I loved. Some of the songs, but never really loved the album because it is a, a pretty out there album. It's hard but, work. Yeah, but what struck me listening to it this time around is I just think it's a fantastic sounding album. Every That's single instrument. Down to Nick Launay. Yeah, yeah, mm. for sure. Every instrument on it from like the incidental sounds, the background noises, the vocals, the little kind of like the pounding of piano strings and the weird guitar and, and all of that. I just think it's a beautiful album in that respect. And that's something that wasn't apparent to me when I was listening to it on a cassette recorder, you know, like as a, as a 17-year-old. Back in so, the day. so the songs, they're, they're not necessarily great songs because, I mean, the, the first song, Four Enclosed Walls, is not much more than drums, a kind of a howling, kind of almost sort of semi- Islamic sounding, like deliberately kind of Middle Eastern sounding vocal and kind of like a ticking kind of sound almost in the background and that's pretty much the the entire song. And that's how Public Image chose or how John Lydon chose to present the band immediately after Metal Box, which had been 90% guitar and bass. Heaps of bass, Mm. yeah. To just, as you're saying, having effectively no bass at all. And well, the bass player left and they just went, we're not going to have any bass then. It's <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah, revolutionary. Right. Most people go, well, we'll get another bass player. Yeah, yeah. And and just, but we won't have any. Yeah. He wasn't having it. No. And I think that is kind of a stroke of genius, really. Just for that to occur to John Lydon in particular, I'm not sure how much Keith Levine had to do with the album because he didn't play much on it. And, in fact, John Lydon in his uh, memoir, Anger is an Energy, said that Keith Levine spent most of the recording sessions for Flowers of Romance playing Space Invaders. Well, it was very popular at the time. (laughs) (laughs) That'll give our listeners a bit of a time time frame there. Hardly blame him for that. No, that's true. That's true. It was was addictive. But I think, you know, full marks to John for that idea occurring to him and for running with that to the nth degree and similar to Metal Box, like Mm. just the kind of creative intent behind the first three albums is really amazing, whether whether it's always successful or not. But that fits in neatly with my three-album theory again. What's that theory again? That theory is that all bands only have three good albums in them and if they're one after the other, at best, they reach a peak and I think... You wouldn't include Never Mind the Bollocks in this, but John Lydon had been on a creative role year mm. after year after year pretty much up until that point and had done some amazing stuff and some rubbish as well, but enough brilliant stuff to qualify those three albums as um, as, as good as anything that was out there at the time. Yep. We, we should have called this podcast Three Amazing Albums. <laughs> but then we would have had to talk about other albums. I should say also mm. that um, the Nirvana singer, Kurt Cobain listed uh, Flowers of Romance in his top, I think, 50 albums of all time Uh or something like that, which I wouldn't have thought. I can't see any of that in Nirvana's music. but um, No. He uh, he had eclectic taste, did Kurt. Yeah. yeah. So um, kudos to you. Well, I think it would be, again, a difficult album to listen to all the way through frequently. But, Mm. but, But what I like about it compared to Metal Box is that, it is quite um, quite constructed mm. as an album. It does like no, I don't think there's any song more than about five minutes. Yeah. It feels it, it feels doesn't very take too long. No, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but it it does feel as if at any given point they're trying to do something specific and deliberate rather than just maybe having songs meandering a little bit, which is 
how some of the songs on on Metal Box strike me, but yeah. but obviously that's a very subjective that's thing. That's why I like them. Mm. Um, we should go on to some of their live gigs around those first few years because they were quite challenging. Well, the, the one that I wanted to speak about, the one specific gig I'd like to talk about is the Notorious uh, Riot at the Ritz show from uh, May 1981. Uh, first of all, there was this guy called Michael Alago. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was uh, booking acts for the Ritz and uh, he went on to be an A&R guy and eventually was responsible for signing Metallica. Oh. Anyway, he, uh, on the, this particular night, uh, Bow Wow Wow had cancelled and Michael Alago, in his infinite wisdom, had booked Public Image as a replacement. And, and they uh, decided to um, do something as is their want. They did something a bit more experimental. So they put up uh, like a screen and they um, performed behind it while they, they projected things up on the screen. Mm. And uh, also <laughs> John Lydon being John Lydon, he was taunting the audience. He was saying, you know, stupid audience or something like that. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that, that's uncalled that's, that, that, that's, that's a little uncalled. bit harsh. Yeah, it's a bit harsh, I think. I mean, New York audiences don't mind being abused, but <laughs> there's a line. to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, this um, turned into a complete riot. The New York audience put up with it for only so long. And then they started throwing beer bottles and things at the screen. But the reason why I became almost obsessed with this is that when this happened on Triple Z in Brisbane, which is the, the public radio, public radio station. station in Still uh, is. where we grew up, I remember them talking about this, this gig, and they actually played audio from it. And it was just all you heard was just noise. And, and people screaming and screaming. <laughs> it could have been a car crash. <laughs> yeah, I know. Wow. And, and I was like, oh, my God. What, 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 you know, I was thinking, what, what is he doing? Because uh, Who are these punks? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like this back in my day. Yeah. Um, but that was your day. It was my day, yeah. yeah. It was my, well, as I said, I didn't uh, hear much of the first album. The second album I loved, Flowers of Romance, I hadn't listened to at that point. And then I heard about this, and um, this was eighty one. This gig, it, it was yeah. This was uh, May fifteenth, eighty one. So probably just before the release of yeah. the album we were just talking about. Yeah, and around yeah, then, it's around. It's about certainly there. more or less coincided. Yep. Yes, a couple of months before that, um, March eighty one, you two made their American debut at the same venue, uh-huh. and it was a lot nicer. It was a lot nicer. Yeah. They didn't play behind screens. And Bono didn't say stupid audience. Stupid audience, yeah. Stupid audience. They're <laughs> all stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what made me laugh <laughs> mostly about this was that at the very end, the people uh, running the venue played disco music to disperse the crowd. <laughs> 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 and I wonder whether um, that's ever happened in the history of music. Anywhere else where, like, if there was a fight at a gay bar or something, they started playing disco music. A bit of Sylvester to, to uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you'd have to play it something would be like, that they uh, wouldn't uh, like, the... <laughs> like heavy metal or something. Sergeant, they seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> They're not dispersing. But, yeah. That, that, the that's... audience is funky. <laughs> Repeat, funky. <laughs> the audience is getting They're down. They're getting on down. <laughs> but, yeah, that was um, – obviously their shows have, have um, been a bit more sedate since then. Yeah, I, but, um, I I do remember seeing them in Brisbane in about '84, maybe. That's right, they the do. Mansfield didn't they? Tavern, uh, which is a suburban beer barn in Brisbane, as the name <laughs> might suggest, and um, that was the first time I'd seen them because the Sex Pistols never came to Australia, so I'd never seen John Lydon in the flesh, and I always remember that one of the members of the crowd had a German army helmet on. <laughs> 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 so you rock up to a gig on a Wednesday in Mansfield with your German army helmet. <laughs> Why not? The context, I mean, really, if any mm. member of the audience should be called stupid, there's one. But anyway, so John Lydon <laughs> saw this guy oh, and singled wow. him out, said something like, Oi, you with the helmet, what a turd. <laughs> <laughs> and basically shamed this guy. I don't know whether he removed the helmet. He may have been an off-duty German soldier, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, yeah. But it was a World War II German helmet, like a, like a Nazi helmet. Wow. What a strange thing to do. I'm going to go and see Public Image and drag out my World War II memorabilia. John will like that. Yeah. <laughs> or Weird. as as I wear every day, I'll be bringing my helmet along well, and hopefully finally I'll get some recognition. Is, why wouldn't I wear my helmet <laughs> to the gig? <laughs> I wear it every day. It's what? a Wednesday. It's helmet day. It's helmet, it's helmet day. day. <laughs> Surprisingly, he was the only member of the audience with that helmet on. I don't think I've ever been to a gig 
before or since where someone was wearing a World War II helmet. Was that no. the helmet that had the spike? No, that's the World War I helmet, Graham. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Easy mistake Excuse me. <laughs> no, You're no, talking the, to helmet man here, The Graham. World War I helmet had the spike. <laughs> yeah. The World War II helmet, they decided the spike was no longer necessary. Yes. Uh, headbutting had fallen out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why the spike was there? Nobody knows. Mm. So the, I think it was just meant to look scary. <laughs> yeah. If you have a spike on your helmet, you're like, not only are you yeah. wearing a helmet, you've got a spike. Yeah, definitely. How tough is this guy? Death by headbutt had yeah. failed to trouble the scorers that, yeah. for some time now. This, you're not mucking around with a spike on the top of your helmet. Um, In terms of, um, sorry. Yeah, to, so that, and it was a great gig, I should say. There was no oh, okay. riot. Right, right. The fellow with the helmet was quietly shamed but persisted in wearing the helmet. <laughs> he didn't take it off? <laughs> didn't take it off. Oh, good on him. He didn't sculpt from the venue. He did not. He, mm. he, he, he continued. Well, to, to to take the timeline even further forward just briefly, mm. I think it's interesting that their public images performances were so extreme in 1981 and by 1987, which is when I saw public image the one and only time in Switzerland, as did you, I Mark. I did too at, the, at an outdoor festival. Yeah, an That's outdoor correct. festival. Yes. Uh, we did. And I wish I could remember what the name of that was. Um, oh, I was hot, hot. Hot Music Festival or something was like it, it was a really kind of bland, bland name yeah. um, in L- Lausanne. Lausanne, that's right. Yes, um, but oh, I know Lausanne. Sorry, yeah. that's, that's got nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I've been there. So, <laughs> there we go. Let's, was that you? <laughs> let's reflect on that for a few minutes. <laughs> Switzerland, great place. I've I, heard just, I just want everyone to know that I've travelled. Home, <laughs> home of the International Olympic Committee, I think Lausanne mm. is. Mm. Yes, that's why I was there. Mm. Were they headlining the festival, Patrick? I think they might have I been. I think they were too. They might have been, yeah. 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 But uh, what, what's interesting to me in retrospect about that is how straight the band was mm. at that stage. That They were just a rock band playing rock songs and they, they were good songs. But I've had a look at the set list from 1987 oh, from, yes. from that gig. Which we've never referred to before. And we've never referred to before. Setlist.com? Setlist.com, I think. Excellent. Setlist.com. Mm-hmm. And... Interestingly, they played a couple of songs from Sex Pistols and the first Public Image album, but they played none from Metal Box and none from Flowers of Romance, which is not surprising perhaps, but it is interesting how those songs didn't translate, or as John Lydon felt in 1987 on that particular day in Switzerland anyway, Mm. those songs didn't translate into a kind of a rock band kind of traditional setup, and so a song like Rise was much more what the crowd was the going crowd to respond to, for. I guess. Helmet mm. Man notwithstanding. <laughs> Helmet Man notwithstanding, yes. which ties in perhaps to some extent with the follow-up album to Flowers or Romance if we're moving on from, from Flowers I think or we should because Graham has, has gone out on a limb and said the fourth album, well, it was not. Te- it's not really the fourth because the live album Paris au printemps was actually the third album. Before Flowers of Romance, I believe. So we're going to say fourth studio album. Is, yeah, yeah. Is this is what you want, this is what you get. Yeah. Now, yeah. now Graham, I'll, I'll hand this over to you because you have decided that they made a conscious decision to make the music more likable and accessible. Uh, so so uh, this was 1984, so it was yeah, like so was three, three, three years, years had passed. Yeah, and, and, and none of the original band members were left. Hmm. Yeah. Well, personally, I think they've made more of a conscious uh, effort to be more accessible from that point onwards. Even the music they make today is far more accessible than those first three albums. What I remember was uh, watching an episode of Miami Vice. Oh, yes. And they played um, at a very crucial scene uh, at the end of an episode. They played Order of Death. Mm. I don't know whether the song was written for the movie, but he was involved. He in was in the, the movie. He was in the movie. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Did he write the song? Yeah, I think I think they, there was some talk of Public Image doing the soundtrack for the film, but it didn't didn't quite come to pass. Mm. So okay. you, you so, knew they'd hit the big time. So, so yeah, and, yeah. and I, I was just amazed at watching this show, which was for you know general exhibition in um, in America, and hearing John Lydon's voice. It was a real surreal yeah, yeah. moment. And just, just hearing hearing his, this is what you want, this is what you get, chant. This is what you want, this is what you get. I remember thinking, not, not, not that they've all of a sudden sold out, but all of a sudden they'd, they'd made music that may be a little bit more, I don't know, cinematic or something, because it, okay. it was a mood that he created and it worked really well with this particular scene. But, um, yeah, it was, I really, I, I liked that album. Did you like the album at, at yeah, the time? Yeah, at the time, I liked the album and... Um, 
And once again, the, the, that friend of mine who lent me the, the metal box, he, uh, he had that album too. And uh, we both realised that, um, you know, it, it was different and it was almost a conscious effort to, to maybe broaden their audience, I think. Yeah. Well, this is him at this point, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty much mm -hmm. just been yeah. since then. a fan of that album at the time? Not especially, no, I didn't get it. I, it didn't mm. kind of, I thought there was enough good commercial music out there without him doing that as well. I didn't but, but, need that from him. But I don't think, like, like it's not like he became Culture Club or something. It, it, no, it, it, no. It's just that I guess his instrumentation and arrangements were a bit more traditional, I guess. Yeah. There was still experimentation there. It was mm. still. Do you think? I think so. Like, it, it certainly wasn't straight up pop But this music. is no. John Lydon. Yeah, yeah, well, that's of right. Of the Sex Pistols <laughs> yeah, yeah. and Public yeah. Image. So well, that was yeah. kind of what I was leading towards. That I was just like, this is not him. Mm. Obviously it is him and he does whatever the hell he likes, but I didn't quite connect with the point of that. Well, it's it, yeah. I think it's easy to hold John Lydon up to to a different standard to most other people. And listening to that album, I think I think it's a good album. Um, but there are hundreds of bands, probably literally hundreds of bands, playing music that was really, really similar to that. Everyone mm. from Frankie Goes to Hollywood to um, uh, men, men Without Hats. Um, so Can that work. I've so, been waiting for us to mention Men Without Hats. In so it's, it, well, it's it was in good it, context with Helmet Man. Yeah, that's right. So it, it's just a bit disappointing in in a historical kind of context that that you would go from two albums in particular, like Metal Box and Flowers of Romance, which which are both amazing albums. Whether you know whether you like them or not, they're 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 amazing albums. To go to an album which is pretty kind of ordinary in a pretty fundamental way, it's a pretty ordinary album, and even though it's the, got good songs on even it. Even in the, con the context of being a John Lydon album. You've got you've got to put it in there and say it's pretty ordinary. Mm. I mean, it's 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 likable. It's, it's likeable. yeah, absolutely. Well, which is not a word you'd associate no, with anything no. he's ever done. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, but you know, as you say, maybe it was a conscious decision to um, to go down that path. And I think certainly the next album, which was album, did it have rise on it? It did. That was that album. was a big hit. Wasn't that it? was the Bill Laswell produced album. Basically, Bill Laswell rounded up every every musician he knew, which was like Steve Vai, the Guitar Hero, and Ginger Baker. Ginger Baker was on him. Uh, one of the great jazz drummers whose name eludes me. But anyway, a whole bunch of an all star cast, and kind of did the album with with that in mind, and it became pretty successful. And the, the packaging was all very minimal. The CD, uh, CD was called CD. The cassette was called cassette. The album was called album. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they had a success with it, a big hit. And Rise is still a great song. It, 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 listening to it now, it makes me kind of realise how far they'd come. Yeah, yeah. How far he'd come, I suppose. It doesn't sound like Metal Box or no, no. Flowers of Romance. No. I mean, a few mm. years before. But he's particularly proud of that song and I can see why he is as as a song and as a statement. I think, mm. you know, it's a fantastic song. And it's got that nice Irish saying, may the road rise yeah, with you. Yeah. Yeah. There, which his Irish background. Yeah, which would certainly yeah. which is why Patrick loves it so much. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and it reminds me of the rolling fields. <laughs> it's a great song and it's a great album and it's that is not part of the discussion, I suppose, of the post punk no. era. Yeah. For me, the first three albums really set set the tone. Uh where he went after that is like a lot of the bands we've talked about into other areas, and and that's his prerogative, of mm. course. Well, th th this this is what we're we're talking about is that not not, not so much those three albums, but um, all the music from other bands that came after that. Mm. So many people must have been listening to what he was doing. In that well, time. so many people would have mm. been anticipating what he was going to do because he was the absolute unquestioned leader in that time. Mm. Yep. Whatever he yep. said yep. was gospel. Yeah, you know everything he he stood for was was what mattered back mm, then yeah. to to anybody of a certain age and certainly musicians in other bands, um, and you know the idea that sorry to go back to second edition but they wanted to make anti music and the first album they wanted to make music that wasn't like anything you'd ever heard before and I think they achieved that in those first three <laughs> albums releasing yeah. an album with no bass is pretty radical yeah. Mm, yeah and to do that now would be pretty radical. To do it in 1981 was, like I said, no one, no one had done that that I know of. Not, not even the crowd rock bands. No. <laughs> and for someone like John Lydon, who didn't have 
any particular grasp of melody as a singer who didn't play any instruments. No musical training whatsoever. No. Mm. And so what did he actually do in a musical sense on the Sex Pistol stuff or public image stuff? It's a little bit of a mystery in terms mm. of public image in particular, but he was just such a fantastic alchemist, if that's the word, mm. of just kind of bringing together, synthesising all these elements, getting people together who can create this kind of music. And it wasn't just the same bunch of people all the way through. It was... A couple of them stayed for, for one album and a couple stayed for a couple of albums. And he was he was coordinating all of that, you know, mm. over the course of several years. Well, if you think about 76 to 86, which is the, the span of what we've been talking about mm. today, mm. from the Sex Pistols' first single in 76, yep. Anarchy in the UK, up until the album, the Public Image album, album is 10 years. It's an extraordinary yeah. body of work and an extraordinary influence on all music. Mm. That came, and I don't know, it doesn't matter who you are. That 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 he has influenced, and his music has influenced so many people. We talked about Nirvana before, but anybody that grew up in that era or was interested in the wash up of punk can't not have been influenced by mm. Public Image. Even if you take the Sex Pistols out of the equation, in some ways they're more influential than mm. than what the Sex Pistols. Well, I remember um, Henry Rollins. He always used to say that. He liked the Sex Pistols, but um, what John Lydon did with Public Image was much better. It was much more interesting. It was, the Sex Pistols were what they were, and, mm. and a lot of people copied them. But yeah, I think a lot of people were really strongly influenced by what uh, what he did. Well, he would never have had the opportunity to do those things without the Sex Pistols, though. No, he would. He would never have oh, been. No. He would never have been inside a studio. It's so it's an incredible achievement off the back of a unique situation that yeah he was he was in the right place at the right time well, yeah it? but think about this you know malcolm mclaren put that band together uh, more or less i mean yeah. it's, uh, they had a band without john Lydon. they didn't have a singer steve jones was doing the singing and to find this guy based off him hanging around the shop that malcolm mclaren owned clothing shop and just to go put him in front of a jukebox and go mime to something and i think it was a um uh, what's his name? Alice Cooper song, 17. Yeah. I think he mined to that in the shop. To spot that as somebody who might have something to offer, it's quite phenomenal. It's like it's a one in a billion mm. thing. Mm. So yeah. you, you could say the entire history of music post that hinged on that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure other things would have happened, but that happened. Mm. Other things didn't happen, that happened. Yeah. Well, there was only one band that was on the front page of, of the tabloids mm. and it was the Sex Pistols. So, mm. you know, the, the Clash and the Damned and all those other bands were were kind of tra- trailblazers in certain respects, but, you know, there, there was only one Sex Pistols. Without Pistol. the Sex Pistols there was no punk movement and without punk there was no post-punk mm. and all of those things are all connected. So I, I think John Lydon is one of the most important musical figures with, along with anybody in pop music, anyway, that we wanted, that we could talk about, with your John Lennons and you know Mick Jaggers and anybody else, he's got to be there for his influence and the work that he's done. Mm-hmm.